Okay, good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our study of Martin Chemnitz in Caridian. We are going to pick back up on page 99. We're in the section on good works and new obedience that began on page 96, or a little ways into it. And we will get reintroduced and kind of recontextualized here right after our invocation prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Okay, so the question that we left off in the middle of last week begins on page 98, and I'll just restate the question. What then are the reasons for which good works are to be done by believers or those who are justified? And we saw a number of answers given here already. Uh, Urbanus Regius is mentioned, um, and then down to uh, Philip Melanchthon, and then down to Luther at the very bottom of 98. So I'm going to just re-go through Luther's points here. So Luther sets forth the reasons why good works are to be done in such a way that if they were briefly summarized, the list would be about this. First, some have regard to God himself, namely since it is the will of God and the command of God. And since he is our father, it therefore behooves us children to render obedience to the Father. And as he loved us and graciously forgave our sins, so we also should love the brethren, forgiving them their sins, that God might be glorified through us. Christ also redeemed us, that being dead to sins, we might live unto righteousness and serve him. Nor should we grieve the Holy Spirit. Okay, so a collection of Luther's teachings on good works. And then the second paragraph, some motivating reasons for good works have regard to the reborn themselves. For since we are dead to sins, we ought therefore no longer walk in sins, but live unto righteousness. Likewise, that we might have sure testimony that our faith is not false, feigned, or dead, but true and living faith, which works by love. Um, This is a point I'll highlight and just draw your attention to because in, I mean, sadly, the rest, <laughs> sadly, the American church doesn't care about any of this stuff. Too busy having circuses for worship service and otherwise apostatizing uh, by capitulating to the woke satanic mobs. That's really what the church in America is up to. But the only people who care about these things are Lutherans. And then, um, by and large, Lutherans are botching this. And this is one of the points that you'll recognize. I want you to see that Chemnitz is taking this idea right from Luther that um, some of the motivating reasons for good works, that's the first sentence of this paragraph, 
include this, that we might have sure testimony that our faith is not false, feigned, or dead, but true and living faith, which works by love. And then look at the scriptures cited, because this is a thoroughly scriptural idea. So, you know, how do I know I'm saved? If your answer is, well, because I look at my good works, that's probably not a good answer. That's probably not good rationale. And especially under times of extreme persecution or temptation, I'm talking of the satanic variety, the spiritual variety, uh, that's one of the things that Satan will try to get you to do is either become self-righteous, oh yeah, look at all my good works, or to get you to despair, I have no good works, there's no evidence of faith. So there are circumstances, obviously, in which it's not wise uh, to follow this course. But why then does Luther follow it? Why does Chemnitz follow it? Why do the scriptures state it, even if not all that frequently? And the reason and rationale is because a Christian just going about their daily life should recognize in themselves fruits of the Spirit, should recognize in themselves desires that they would not have if they were merely of the flesh. And that is a comforting thing, not in any absolute sense. It's certainly not a uh, self-righteous thing, like I'm, because of this I'm thereby saved, but you can look and say, I know that these impulses within me to love God and to love neighbor don't come from me. These come from the Holy Spirit. They're, in fact, they're inconsistent with who I know myself to be as a sinner, and yet I recognize that they're there by the miracle, by the grace and work of God through his Holy Spirit in me. God be thanked and praised. And of course, that's evidence of a genuine faith. And there is, in fact, some spiritual anfectung or tentatio that you can endure where it is very healthy to point to this and say. So, you know, Satan will say, oh, well, uh, you're not very uh, or truly penitent because here's this sin you keep habitually falling back into. One of his favorite uh, attacks. You can say, hmm, but I agree with the law that it is good. And I delight in the law, and I see within me this desire that is contrary to the law, and I likewise condemn it. All of that is good work reflecting upon good work. It's reflecting attitude of the heart that isn't present in the impenitent. It isn't present in those with false faith. It isn't present in unbelievers. Okay, so that would just give you an articulation and an example by which these words of Luther could be very applicable and very helpful. Even so, they're simply stated in the scripture, this, this concept is stated in the scripture, it's stated in the Lutheran tradition, it's stated by Luther himself, that part of the motivating reasons for good works is that we might have their testimony that our faith is not false, feigned, or dead, but true and living. All right? When's the last time you've heard modern Lutherans talking like that? We're, we're told that this is works, right? We're told that this idea is not Lutheran. Luther says it. And that it's not biblical. Look at all the scriptural quotations. And that anybody who says this is a legalist, let them label you a legalist. Be faithful to the scriptures. Be faithful to the Lutheran tradition. All right, did I see a hand? Yes, sir. I have a question. Uh, on the road of good works, we can fall off on either side in error. 
Um, are we to, when we look at our life, to how, are we to look at our good works and see that we're in the center of that road, uh, measuring ourselves in our walk in the good works life, or how would you comment? Yeah, on that? I mean, so what immediately comes to mind is that scripture where Saint Paul writes, uh, "If you stand, take heed lest you fall." So it's good to recognize your standing, self-evidently, right? But with that, don't become complacent or proud. Take heed lest you fall. He doesn't, he doesn't say, um, if you stand, uh, recognize how hypocritical and self-righteous and anti-gospel you've become and lay down. <laughs> That's not what he says. If you stand, take heed, take care, lest you fall. So he acknowledges you are standing, but given that you're standing, or to use your example, given that you're walking down the narrow path of life, don't become arrogant over and against those who are not or those who are stumbling on their way. Um, Take heed, take care, lest you fall away from that path, lest you no longer walk it, lest you no longer stand. So kind of slightly mixing metaphors there, but hopefully that helps. I mean, I... There's nothing at all wrong with, I mean, even St. Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, um, he writes to them, now it is particular to their relationship, of course, but he says, I know of nothing against myself. Now, I'm not thereby justified. It's a small thing that you would judge me. I'm not even going to judge myself. It's the Lord who judges, but I have a clean conscience toward you. Uh, what a wonderful statement. Paul would be decreed and probably have some pebbles thrown at him because the, the heretics of our, our day and age aren't manly enough to throw full stones. They'd probably throw some pebbles at him uh, for his uh, self-righteousness here that he knows of nothing against himself. Who could ever dare say such a thing? St. Paul. So this is, this is an idea of just spiritual health and spiritual balance And I think for a long time in the Lutheran Church, again, we're about the only ones that care about this stuff. Um, So better to care than not to care. But when you care, you should get it right. But for a long time in the Lutheran Church, there's this idea of like the ideal Christian is one who's constantly walking around throwing ashes on his head going, woe is me, woe is me. Um, I'm a poor, miserable sinner, nothing else, nothing more. Um, what did you do today? Nothing but sin. And while, while these kinds of exaggerations can be, I mean, they can sort of drive home a point, particularly maybe in the silo of the question of justification, they're not expressive of a thoroughgoing biblical spirituality or even a thoroughgoing Lutheran spirituality, as I hope you can see in a text like this, where you've got Chemnitz and Luther and Melanchthon and uh, uh, Regius, and a whole ton of scriptural citations. As Christians, it's good to have a clean conscience. It's good to confess that I'm a sinner, but I am uh, in a state of repentance. And, I know, and I'm also in a state of faith because I know God forgives me. Though I deserve it not, he forgives me. And to have that kind of spiritual health. Okay? Now again, when the times of affliction Anfechtung in German or tentatio in Latin, these spiritual afflictions take place. 
then yeah, our, our um, answers and our reflections are going to be modified accordingly. But that's no reason to somehow, like, I mean, I, I, at its most absurd, it's like to have this quote-unquote dark night of the soul where you're despairing practically of your faith and you're just clinging on by your very fingernails to Christ, is in many Lutheran circles like put up as, oh, this is the most enlightened, wise, and healthy position you can be in as a Christian. Nonsense. I, I just utter nonsense. Uh, that's a desperate situation in which you're in. You need to be comforted by the gospel, and we'll pray that you're sustained by the Holy Spirit in that. And, right, it might be wise to uh, comfort yourself with a certain set of scriptures as opposed to a different set of scriptures, so on and so forth. But that's all, that's all been well known and understood for a long time in the Lutheran Church and the Western tradition. This idea that you've got to constantly be despairing over your very, very salvation to be a good Lutheran is just preposterous. This idea that you can't look and say, I have a clean conscience, I know of nothing against myself. I mean, before God I plead guilty of all sins, but before man, or before you in particular, I know of nothing against myself. Not thereby justified, Christ is still my judge. I've got a clean conscience, I've got a pure heart, I know I'm walking the narrow path. I have faith in Christ, I see evidence of the Holy Spirit in my life. There's just zero wrong with this. There's zero legalistic about this. It's just the way that the scriptures give us to live and move and have our being as Christians. Make sense? I know I'm probably on a, on a little soapbox here, but, you know, it's, it's a lonely soapbox because so many, uh, so many have forsaken the obvious words of scripture and the obvious words of our tradition. Please. Without getting too hippy-skippy woo-woo, it... The framework that you just presented has us in the center, but our focus needs to be towards our the Heavenly Father or to, towards our neighbor, if I understood it correctly. So basically, we're humbling ourselves to focus more on our Father and on our neighbor, and the, the more we empty ourselves and focus on the other those two things actually come back around to us mm-hmm. to strengthen, preserve us, sustain mm-hmm. us, give us strength. So it's, it's like upside down town. You know, the more you focus on what I'm doing, mm. look at me, you're doing it wrong. The more mm. you focus on taking care of your neighbor and putting yourself lower, you do get something out of it, but not because you did something for yourself. Does that make, yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, yeah, it's it the does. whole... I think like, that's generally a helpful frame to think in, absolutely. Um, I, I think the frame here is a little different than that, even though it, I'm not saying that to in any way rebut your point. I think you make a fair point and a fine point, and lots of good can come from that framing. Uh, if, you look, if you look at maybe just the first lines, so uh, this would be... At the, again, at the beginning paragraph, at the bottom of 98, Luther sets forth the reasons why good works are to be done. Okay? And then, just skipping a line, first, some have regard to God himself. Okay, now look at the start of paragraph 2, over on page 99. Some motivating reasons for good works have regard to the reborn themselves. 
And now go to the first line of the third paragraph. Some reasons have regard to the neighbor. So the framing that Luther is here using, and of course, I mean, Chemnitz is organizing Luther's thoughts into, the, into this threefold framing, is that good works should be done for the sake of God, for the sake of self, and for the sake of neighbor. Yeah. I mean, it is, a, it is a good thing for you to go to church and pray, praise, and give thanks. It's good in all kinds of ways. It's good because it's an evidence of your faith. It's good because it's uh, holistically good for you. That's what you were designed for. In the same way it's good, you know, if you're, of, if you're of healthy athletic age, to go take a run. It's good for you. It's using what you have. Using what God's given you. Using the things according to their purpose and good order. Yeah, so you've got this, you've got this threefold frame set forth. And um, I, I like it because... Um, there, there is a, an, an aspect of self. I think Lutherans tend to be very good on um, good works for my neighbor. Right? Not so good on good works for the sake of God, but that's the next closest. And then not good at all on good works for the sake of self. <laughs> so we're challenged at least on two of these points. And I think the point we're on right now is the one that's most challenging. We don't reflect on the fact that good works are good even for us. And God gives us good works to do because, for our own benefit. Okay, so let me just, we're right in the middle of that um, second paragraph toward the top of page 99. And let me read that line one more time and then just we'll finish out the paragraph. Likewise, that we might have sure testimony that our faith is not false, feigned, or dead, but true and living faith, which works by love, and that we might not drive out faith, grieve the Holy Spirit, and lose righteousness and salvation. Again, there are more texts there cited than I'm willing to read through right now. And that we might not draw divine punishments on ourselves. Right. It's great. So here, here in view would be specifically temporal punishments. That's the low-hanging fruit. Um, but perhaps even eternal consequences. So one of the motivations to do good and turn away from evil, even as a Christian, is because though you're justified by grace through faith apart from works, uh, your good works and your sins, they'll have temporal benefits and blessings or temporal consequences and punishments. And to some extent, these possibly even extend organically into, uh, into the new heavens and the new earth. Okay. So that's, um, again, a reason to have regard for good works and even within yourself. Motivating reasons for good works have regard to the reborn themselves for these reasons. Um, and you remember what God says. So uh, the, the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 begin with, I am the Lord your God. Law or gospel? I think it's gospel. I am the Lord your God means I have claimed you as... So we're going... I'm cheating a little bit because it's not, you know, it's not necessarily native to the words of that particular text. But if you're tracking with the Torah up to that point, you realize that God has 
chosen Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, chosen that line, and then chooses Moses, through which he sets the people free. And he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, etc., etc. That's all gospel and a recognition of what God has done for them and the relationship that he's established to them, right? Then he says, you shall have no other gods before me. So the law follows the gospel, even when the Ten Commandments are given. That is, it's given to God's people as a guide onto their lives, and then that um, obviously reveals their sins along the way, even as it does for us. It's also why Luther puts, um, as the head of the household should teach his children. So Luther's assuming it's a Christian household, otherwise why are you going to be teaching your children this? And what comes first are the Ten Commandments. Okay. Now what's at the end of the Ten Commandments in in Exodus and in, uh, or the conclusion of the commandments, even if not uh, like line by line the end? the logical conclusion of the commandments, both in the scriptures and in the catechism. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. And otherwise, consequence. The promise of blessing on the one hand for obedience and the promise of punishment for disobedience. So that is um, in the Scriptures in the small catechism, and then if you have any doubts, go read the large catechism, most of which consists of explication of the Ten Commandments, and watch how every single one includes substantial sections promising temporal and eternal consequences for whether one does good or evil, even as a Christian who is justified by grace through faith apart from works. So that's an essential part of the motivation. And of course, the threat of punishment is meant to mortify, crucify, drown the sinful Adam and his impulses. Making room, making way for the Holy Spirit and the new man to do his stuff instead. All right, on to paragraph three. Some reasons have regard to the neighbor. All right, so once again, God's self, neighbor. Some reasons have regard to the neighbor, namely that the neighbor be helped and served by good works that our neighbor might be drawn to godliness by our example. And look at what's quoted, Matthew 5.16. This is worth looking at because it's the words of our Lord and because it contradicts popular theology. Popular theology is, it's like, good works are probably even a hindrance to evangelism because they're going to see you as goody two-shoes and then they're not going to listen to what you say. So you should probably go slumming with them and roll around in the gutters and get nice and filthy in sin so that they'll uh, recognize you as a fellow sinner and then preach the gospel to them. That's how you ought to convert them. According to modern antinomianism, in contrast to that, Matthew 5, 16 and the words of our Lord, but to get the full context, 14. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. 
Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Good works aid evangelism and are an occasion for evangelism. Good works stand out over and against the evil of the world as light stands out against the darkness and it draws people to you. Why are you doing that? Why are you acting selflessly? Why are you acting principled to your own harm? Why are you standing against the world? Those are the kinds of questions that grew the early church. And the early church's stark contrast to the culture around and it's unabashed, unashamed condemnation of the world because the world is enmity with God and friendship with the world is enmity with God. Unabashed, unashamed denunciation of the darkness of the world. No attempt whatsoever to make friends with the world. That's what draws people in. That's, according to Christ, his own words, um, what we're to be about as the light of the world. Letting our good works so shine, letting our light so shine that they see us, that they see our good works and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. Now, I mean, by way of, by way of just closing off a, a flank to be as, you know, assaulted and attacked by uh, the modern antinomians, uh, let, me, let me do the legwork for them. So go, just flip forward it to, from Matthew 5 to Matthew 6. Try to pick the the best one here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Six one I'll do. I think six one I think is the strongest. Okay, look at uh, Matthew chapter six verse one. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Did Jesus contradict himself in his own sermon? I think not. But let's go ahead and line this up in the, in the most apparently contradictory way we can. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Okay, now let's contrast that with chapter 5, verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Can you spot any differences? Can you explain how it's not a contradiction? Anyone want to volunteer? So, yes, so in the first case, the good works are done in such a way that they glorify God, not you. In Matthew 6, the warning is that they're done in such a way that you receive the glory and praise of man, not God. Then he goes on to talk about, you know, how the Pharisees, when they give a, when they give a $5 bill to the poor, they blow a trumpet first. Everybody looking? Everybody paying attention? Here I am, being gracious. That draws attention to oneself, not to God. It's not a good work. You've already got your reward in the uh, appellations of man. Likewise, then, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. They like to stand in the synagogues and on the street. Does that mean we shouldn't be seen praying? Absolutely not. When you go to the restaurant, out with your family, pray. Pray out loud. 
but we're not praying to be seen by others. We're praying because, would you do that in your house? Then why on earth would you change when you're outside your house? Not to be seen by men. It's who you are. Don't compromise who you are. Um, and then likewise, of course, with uh, fasting, you know, you can fast by looking all gloomy and dour and talking about how starving you are. One guy I knew indicated that he was fasting because he would carry like four loaves of bread around with him everywhere he went. And we're like, okay, well, first of all, I think you kind of missed the point because you're not supposed to let everybody know you're fasting. But then in the second, in the second point, like, are you really fasting with that much bread? <laughs> So, yeah, this hypocrisy is alive and well, of course. But uh, don't look gloomy like the hypocrites. Don't disfigure your face that you may be seen by others. Um, They've already received their reward given to them by others, being like, oh, look how holy he is. Look how much he he torments himself with fasting. But when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who who sees in secret will... Yeah, do nothing because it's grace alone and there's never any reward or... No, no. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. All right, so let your good works shine before men. Let them be seen by men, not in such a way that it gives glory to you, but that they glorify your Father. Make sense? All right, perfect. Yes, sir. So the football player that when he scores a touchdown and drops to his knee and points to heaven, that, that is proper then. He's, he's giving, he's not acknowledging it's him, but he's giving glory to God in that act. I have no problem with that. I kind of have come to like it when uh, Christians act like Christians. and uh, When coaches, uh, as soon as they're interviewed, win or lose, give thanks not just to God, but to Christ. Say something like, uh, to Jesus be the glory, or uh, may God be thanked and praised. I wouldn't be here without his son. And some people see that as trite and trivial. I don't. I don't. I suppose it could be, but why am I going to judge another man trying to peer into his heart when I can't see it? What if that is his simplistic faith shining through? Fantastic. God be praised. And what a testament. What a testament to all those, you know, seven to 12-year-old boys who are out there idolizing these guys and what they see in the first word out of their mouth is that they're Christian? Fantastic. Fantastic. Why not? Okay, I see some other hands flying around here. Please. Uh, I was ran across this, the term, Latin term anima or anima, um, and it was defined as mind... Uh, and or sometimes spirit, and it made me think that um, we only come to faith in Christ through the Holy Spirit, so that the proof, if if you want to say, or the the fruit of the of that would be that we are animated, mm-hmm. right? Exactly. So, anyway, yeah, that, the anima, the breath, the wind, the movement, the motivation, and then to be animated is to be carried along by that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly right. Carried along by the Spirit. Mm-hmm. Yes, sir. I was just going to make a comment in there, probably more grace in this area, mm-hmm. but when someone, and I've experienced this when I was a young adult, is not competent in your salvation, that what Christ did was long was enough for my salvation and for my justification, that when I did these works, I was trying to contribute them to my own salvation. So in that sense, 
Yeah, don't do that. Yeah, I know that. But, <laughs> but, 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 but in that sense, you know, um, we are trying to earn God's favor. And um, I, there's probably God would work with that over than someone who's doing these works to be seen. But I'm wow. just making a point that we cannot do godly works if we were trying to do it because we're not that confident in our salvation that Christ alone is enough. Mm, yes, good point, good point. So that takes us back to you know this distinction. Um, are good works necessary for salvation? No. Good works are necessary, but not for salvation. Um, good works certainly aren't harmful to salvation. But as soon as we start trusting in those good works then that misplaced trust is an impediment to salvation because it becomes faith in our works rather than faith in Christ. Yeah, I think um, we ought to, to make a distinction here. We should not do good works like, okay, God, please let me into heaven. If we're thinking that way, we've actually fallen from grace. That's the stark proclamation of St. Paul in Galatians. If you think you've got to do X in order to get into heaven, you've already fallen from grace because that's no longer grace. That's earning your salvation, whether that's circumcision or some other work of the law or some other good work that you've thought up. That is all. um, You've fallen from grace. Those good works are... show your lack of faith, so to speak. And they're not truly even good works at that point because quid pro quo is not how you get into heaven. God, if I scratch your back enough, will you please scratch mine and let me in? Um, No, that's contrary to the gospel. Okay, so we can be absolutely sure that good works, um, we don't do them for our salvation. But do we do them to please God, for the praise of God, for the reward of God? Absolutely. We should be unashamed to say that because look, Jesus is unashamed to say it. I'm going to follow Jesus, not modern Lutheranism. If that's offensive to people, they can deal with it. But here, Jesus himself says very plainly, um, in in chapter 6, after each one of these sections, which, by the way, interesting, isn't it? Because we've got praying, we've got uh, almsgiving, and we've got fasting. All right here, all taught by Jesus. Yeah, in fact, so just to get the order right, almsgiving, giving to the poor, uh, prayer, and fasting, all essential parts of the Christian life. When's the last time um, anybody's talked about fasting in the Lutheran church? Like this is a good, right, and proper thing to do. Interesting. So then you've got, uh, after the end of each one of these, Chapters, Matthew chapter 6, verse 4. That your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Yeah, and then again in uh, verse, what did I just do? I just did 6, 4, will reward you. 6, 6, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door. And pray to your Father who, see, who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And then again in verse 18, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Uh, since we're studying 1 Corinthians in one of the classes I'm teaching, <laughs> 
I think it's with the men. Three. Uh, we just we just ran across this. I've got to try to find it. First Corinthians. Um, let me look it up here quick. This is this great section. Yeah, there it is. First Corinthians chapter four. And it's at the end of a lengthy section. It's kind of in the, in the middle of this big argument, which I'm not going to try to re-articulate here for the sake of time. But look at the last line here of 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. Then each one will receive his epinos, which the ESV renders commendation. That's fine. Uh, but just more literally, praise. Then each one will receive his praise or commendation from God. So, do our works matter? Not for justification. We're justified in God's sight apart from our works. Do our works matter? Absolutely. Because God so enjoys our good works that he will offer us commendation for them, praise for them, reward for them. Uh, I mean, Augustine ties this in so beautifully with, with grace that um, he, he crowns his own works within us so to speak, right? It's uh, the Holy Spirit who animates, empowers us, uh, motivates us, inspires us to do these good works. And then as if, uh, and then God, properly speaking, should be, should be crowning the Holy Spirit. But indeed, we do cooperate with the Holy Spirit and he crowns us, rewards us, praises us, commends us. Um, well done, good and faithful servant is praise and commendation. Okay, I see a couple hands. Yeah, please, please. Uh, just to back up a little bit and kind of add a little something maybe to John's question here. In our study of Amos 5, or in the book of Amos in general, mm-hmm. we have the Lord, you know, giving all these declarations of, you know, the wicked, all these wicked nations, and then he turns it right onto Israel. And we'll look at this later on today. But all these, the feasts of the Israelites, their solemn assemblies, all these burnt offerings, grain offerings, he says he actually despises them now because they're actually wicked, being done in wickedness because they're going around, you know, sacrificing at all these different altars. Mm-hmm. And so we see that the Lord actually does delight in these faithful acts to him. Yeah. But if they're done in wickedness, then he actually hates when we, when the Israelites were gathering here in wickedness. Yeah. Exactly right. Thank, thank you for sharing that. That reminds me of another line from a psalm. I, th- I think it's... Uh, hang on one second. Sorry, I know you're trying to... Um, yeah, um, Psalm 51, David's favorite penitential psalm, ends with these words that are just right um, lockstep with yours, uh, Vicar. Um, so at, uh, at 18 of Psalm 51, of course, David's praying... Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Why, why does he not at present tense delight in the sacrifices as David and many of the Psalms and many of the prophets reflect? And it's because of the hypocrisy 
they're out offering sacrifices to other god and then offering sacrifices to placate god and they figure like well as long as i put the quarter in i get the toy out as long as i do the right sacrifice god promises not to um, do anything to me even though i'm a complete idolater and and wretch no once one has come to god in repentance and cried out for his mercy, and cried out, create in me a clean heart, O God, renew in me a right spirit, etc., etc. Um, once, once the true sacrifices of God have been received, the, the verse preceding 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Once those true sacrifices have been made in the temple of our hearts unto God, then, verse 19, you will delight in right sacrifices. Then the things we do with our hands are pleasing in your sight. Then you, and the sacrifices we make monetarily, physically, etc., etc. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Okay, yes, sir. Uh, yeah, I had a quick question about when the scriptures mention that like our good works are like filthy rags, and how does that pertain in the, this conversation? Yeah. Um, would that be an instance of pointing like if we think our good works are justifying us before God? Is that an- you already got the answer? Yeah, oh, exactly okay. right. And in in truth, that even um, ties in with our reading today from Article Three in the Formula of Concord mm-hmm. on the righteousness of faith where even the fruits of the Spirit, so the good works wrought in us by the Holy Spirit, these in and of themselves cannot be put forward to justify ourselves before God. So in that sense, they too would fall under the filthy rags. Any, any work that we do that we would drag into the question of justification is a filthy rag. Now, after we've acknowledged that, and that before God we have no righteousness of our own, the only righteousness we have is apart from the works of the law, the righteousness revealed in Christ and him crucified. Once we've acknowledged that, then for the sake of Christ, for the sake of that imputed righteousness, for the sake that his blood covers us and covers all our deeds, God reckons those deeds done in and through his Holy Spirit and in accord with his law, God reckons those deeds as wholly righteous in his sight. But that's a forensic reckoning. If we were to stand there and say these things truly merit or earn in such a way that God owes me, such a way that you present God with a bill of sale, here's my good works, pay up, Uh, you've actually fallen from grace. You're no longer a Christian, right? Yeah, so those are the mechanics there. All right, anything else? Good. Fruitful stuff? Yeah, it's right from the... Right from the teachings of Luther here, via Chemnitz, I think it's fruitful. Love learning from these guys. Okay, uh, 99 and then question 193. But what are the good works that are to be taught and performed in the church? Now, this is such an important question because people will say you've been set free. It's like, okay, well, what does that mean? Now, the real answer is you've been set free from sin. From bondage to the devil, you've been set free from Christ. You're now, or free from Satan. You are now bound to Christ, and bound to do His will. So freedom doesn't mean free to do whatever you want. That's just the self curved in on itself. That's just the definition of sin. You are either bound to the self, 
to the devil, the world, and your own sinful nature, or you're bound to Christ, to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You're bound one or the other. There's no, there's no sense in which you're ever, okay, now I'm free, I can decide what I want to do. Because what do you want to do is going to be evil. <laughs> That's like the, the whole thing that got us into this mess. All right. What then are the good works? When people will say, well, you've been set free, they'll frequently add in these words, you've been set free from the law. A very common confusion is, so the works of the law aren't good works at all. The law is actually bad. The law is actually a curse. The content of the law is arbitrary, capricious, judgmental. Um, You've been set free from the law. So then, then the question is, well, what is a good work then? I mean, if you think of the content of the law, having no other gods, using the name of God rightly, honoring the Sabbath, honoring um, father and mother, obeying father and mother, uh, not murdering, not committing adultery, not stealing, not bearing false testimony and not coveting. And you go, okay, you're free from that. You go do whatever you want to do. Like murder and commit adultery? Oh, no, 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 not like that. Then like keep the law? No, 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 no. Then what? When people say you're freed from the law, they don't know what they're talking about and that good works are apart from the law. They have no categorical clue what they're... And you'll notice, by the way, that people who write this way and speak this way will never actually tell you what a good work is because as soon as they define it, they're going to be defining the law and they've just told you that you're free from the law. (laughs) Often what you'll see instead is they make their own laws. You're free from the law... So what you have to do is <laughs> continue to reject the law in your life. Which is what? A law! It's just a man-made law in opposition to God. That's the absurdity of where we're at. So whenever someone says you're free from the law, you go, what do you mean? <laughs> free from the condemnation of the law. Absolutely! Free from the law as a means by which we have to justify ourselves to God. Absolutely. In those senses, you are free from the law in no other sense. And that's what Chemnitz says all the way back on pages 50 and 51. If you want to see Chemnitz himself say that, pages 50 and 51. Okay, so what are the good works that are to be taught and performed in the church? Answer, only those that God himself has prescribed and commanded in his word whose sum is briefly contained and set forth in the Decalogue, rightly understood. Now, why does he add rightly understood? Because the Decalogue, when you look at it in like Exodus, is given to the Jewish people at the time of Moses. And even some of the particulars of the Decalogue reflect that. The Sabbath day being the seventh day. And the the strict kind of rest that's essential to it, the physical rest from labors. Um, These kinds of things are particular to that time and place, those little details. But rightly understood, what is the essence of the third commandment? Honor the Sabbath. It's not about a specific day, but it's about gathering together with God's people to rest in his Forgiveness to rest in his justification apart from our works, to hear his word and gladly learn and obey it. 
That's what the true spiritual Sabbath is about, what the true spiritual third commandment is about. So that's what Chemnitz is getting at here, set forth in the Decalogue, rightly understood. That is, according to the interpretation of Scripture, which Decalogue or Scripture therefore calls the law of deeds or of works. So if you look at, um, if you've got your Bible, open it up to Romans. I'm going to show you a couple of things here. But what are good works? Good works are those things taught in the Ten Commandments. Um, By the way, what is a sin defined biblically? A sin is that which is contrary to the commandments. St. John tells us in uh, 1 John that sin is anomia, namos for law. Anomia is that which is contrary to or apart from the law. That's the definition of sin. There is no other definition of sin than that which is contrary to the law. So then when someone says, put away the law and do whatever you want, they're inviting you to do what? Sin. They're inviting you to literal lawlessness. If you don't have the law, it's lawless, definitionally. Does this make sense to anybody else? I, whenever I say this in my head, it's so simple that I just wonder if like, it's really this simple to other people as well. I'm glad. I'm glad to be comforted. Like, if you don't have the law, that's lawlessness, and Jesus kind of warns against that, right? Does he? Yeah, he definitely does. Okay, good. When, when like, the, you know, like, you're, are, are you also seeing that the emperor has no clothes? Are you, are you, are you seeing this too? Okay, good. Yeah. <laughs> All right, here's, here's a hand, and then um, let's, let's entertain the hand, and then we'll get into Romans again to, to do a little... Oh, no, no, no. Are you sure? Okay, so then, um, open, to, open to Romans uh, 3. And he's got, um, or at least the editors have, I'm not sure which, uh, Romans 3.27. That's a fine place to start, but I think his point is really rather made in 3.31. So at any rate, uh, Romans 3, one more page, Romans 3, and let's just pick up at 27 then what becomes of our boasting, it is excluded. So what's he talking about? In justification, because everyone has been held captive under sin, under um, the condemnation of God, that the whole world, that every mouth may be stopped, the whole world may be accountable to God, because by works of the law, no human being is going to be justified in his sight. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin, etc., etc., all these things I've just been saying. Okay, and then what becomes of our boasting? There is no boasting, because you have nothing to boast of. When we're talking about justification, there is no good work to boast in. It's all salvation by Christ and Him alone. Okay, so just trying to shorthand you the larger context there. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, because if there was a law of works in place, you would have reason to boast. You could say, hey, I'm better than, or Abraham could boast and say, look, I'm more obedient than, etc. But the boasting is all excluded in Paul's argument because justification is apart from the works of the law. Okay, so by what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. And you can see how that makes perfect sense. That if we're justified by faith apart from works, then boasting's toast by the very law of faith itself. Faith of its essence is apart from works. Okay? 
For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. There's one of those exclusive particles Chemnitz continues to draw our attention to. And by the way, if you're ever tempted to go to Rome, don't for a variety of reasons. But if for no other reason than that little word, the exclusive particles, and they will lead you to verses just like this one, that we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Council of Trent, um, the post-Reformation council held by the Roman Catholic Church, uh, anathematizes this. Count me out. Rather stick with St. Paul. 29, or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. So don't get hung up by the prepositions by and through, but rather just look at the main point. God, who is one, will justify the circumcised, that's the Jews, by faith, and the uncircumcised through works? No, likewise through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? Is the law abolished? Christ is the end of the law. Let's overthrow the law by this faith. What does St. Paul say? By no means, on the contrary, we... If I can read my own handwriting here. Histonomen, establish, make stand, uphold the law. Okay? Now... What about the oft-quoted antinomian's favorite verse? Romans 10.4. That Christ is the end of the law. Full stop. Always in their writings with a period right there. Christ is the end of the law. Period. Romans 10.4. Who are you to argue with Holy Scripture? Oh, let us turn to Romans 10.4. And what does it say? For Christ is the end of the law. Wait a minute. There's no period. Why in all the antinomian writings is there a period there? As if the verse simply ends there. It's almost deceitful. And who is the father of deceit? Interesting. Lawlessness, deceitfulness. I wonder from whence this theology comes. Because lo and behold, when we actually aren't so lazy as to not open our scriptures, 10.4 reads, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. That is to say, once more, St. Paul says, we are not going to be righteous before God on account of the law. We are not going to be justified before God on account of the law. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. If you don't believe, you're back under that law and you're going to be found unrighteous. You're going to be prosecuted in your sins by God and you're going to meet his justice. Yeah, exactly. So then, once more, if we can be assured by St. Paul that the antinomians aren't correct and they have to misquote him, they have to literally cut off the rest of his sentence in order for their point to stand, Christ is not the end of the law. Christ is the end of the law only for righteousness 
to everyone who believes. Then, as we go back to Romans 3.31, we can see all the more clearly what he's getting at. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So much for those who want to get rid of the quote-unquote legal scheme, as if this were some great gospel move. It's not. It's a move that, I mean, is fundamentally stupid, but also deceitful and contrary to the scriptures. So, on the contrary, we uphold or establish the law. Now, the law is established, again, not as a means by which we can be justified before God. In what sense, then, is it established? It is God's good, and God's good will, right? It is the, the expression of his eternal and unchanging will and morality and character. Like father, like son. And so it's established. It, it, its condemnation is put away and ended in Christ. The attempts to justify ourselves by it are put away and ended in Christ. And this, these truths are the very thing that then establish the law. And it's why not only um, does Christ set the law before us, not only do his apostles set the law before us, but of course Luther sets the law before us in both catechisms as well. Alrighty. So then, back to question 193. What are the good works that are to be taught and performed in the church? Answer, only those that God himself has prescribed and commanded in his word whose sum is briefly contained and set forth in the Decalogue rightly understood, that is, according to the interpretation of Scripture, which Decalogue or Scripture therefore calls the law of deeds or of works, established by the gospel, not destroyed by the gospel, we just heard Paul say. And David describes the whole obedience of the pious in this way, Psalm 119.32, I have run the way of thy commandments. Is that a self-righteous statement? Go read Psalm 119 and find out for yourself. But he is repeatedly praying for God's mercy and God's forgiveness. And yet says, I run the way of your commandments. Um, To tie this in with Romans 7, I run the way of your commandments, but I see that my flesh so frequently doesn't want to and hinders me. But since I delight in your commandments, it's no longer I who do this, but sin that dwells in me. Who will save me from this cancer? Who will save me from this anchor? Who will save me from this body of death? And now you see Paul's real sentiment there in Romans 7. Already it's starting to smell very good. But shall we tackle one more? Let's try. It's a short one. 194. But why are not a monastic life and similar things good and God-pleasing works since they were instituted by holy fathers and are done with good intent? Okay, they are not good works. They are not for this reason. Because God wants to rule himself and alone in his great house, which is the church, by commanding and forbidding consciences, as he expressly says, uh, Deuteronomy 12, 8 through 31. And of self-appointed works, he says, Isaiah 1, 12 and 29, 13 and Matthew 15, 9 and Ezekiel 20, 18 through 19. So it's not as if the scriptures are silent on this point of self-appointed works, works fabricated by men. And Paul clearly rejects self-appointed acts of worship through, excuse me, though they have the appearance of wisdom. 
So why are, by and large, monastic life and other similar things that are looked upon um, by most of the church as a good thing, uh, not properly speaking good works, because they're invented by men? Because God never says, go out into the desert and sit in a cave and starve yourself and pray. Yeah, very simple. He puts us into the vocations um, expressed, for example, at the end of Ephesians, to be husband, wife, father, mother, children, um, master slaves, to uh, work uh, for the good of one another, to work for the praise of God, and to work for um, one's own good as well, as Luther expresses. Um, probably, probably most damaging is that most of the monastic life and other similar good things are couched as being superior to the Ten Commandments and the vocations that God sets forth, and simultaneously as means by which one justifies himself or herself before God. So those are the especially pernicious aspects of um, monasticism and other similar um, lives and expressions like that. I still like some of the monks. I still think we can learn a lot from them. I don't think, I don't think just because they went this path that is not prescribed by God's word, um, it doesn't mean that everything they did and said was wrong. Uh, they pray, insofar as they pray on behalf of the church and insofar as they uh, teach us various things about the nature of of sin and God's grace, I'm happy to hear and happy to learn. So just because some guy or gal is a monk or a nun doesn't mean you have to go, okay, well, this person's automatically in hell. I think that's profoundly foolish. Um, But to say that it would have been better for them to stay in society is clear and obvious. They could have written the same things and done the same things and also been all the more fruitful in the vocations, the callings to which God called them. So does that kind of help make sense? Yeah. Um, Athanasius, after whom the Athanasian Creed, the big long one we do, it's just named after him. He didn't actually pen it. But he's a champion of Christology. And we know him for his work called On the Incarnation. It was edited by, or I, I think C.S. Lewis wrote the foreword, rather, um, to that book. And that's, that's thought, largely thought today to be his most popular work. At the time of his life, his most, impo- uh, his most popular work was um, The Life of Antony, which is all about the sort of quintessential uh, monk who goes out into the desert and really is the father and template of desert monasticism. And that's a completely fruitful book. And, but again, look at that. If you're going to say, well, that didn't have any fruit or didn't have any goodness to it, uh, you're going to say then, well, Athanasius didn't get this right and neither did uh, so many of his followers who happened to get everything else right. They just erred on this point. I doubt it. I think that that's a tremendous book and the most helpful book I've personally read on the question of like demons and demon possession and spiritual warfare. Extremely helpful. Um, and it was obviously viewed as such. So we don't need to a- approach these things with this kind of blanket condemnation like, well, Antony was a monk, so he's probably burning in hell, has nothing to teach us. It's not what I think the Book of Concord is saying or Chemnitz is saying. Um, obviously, we could wish that he used his great mind, intellect, willpower in more fruitful ways. Um, but to God's glory and praise, he was still very fruitful despite this sort of wrong turn and course of life into monasticism. All right, that's it. The Lord be with you. Amen.